This is a podcast from Minute Media. Sox fans, here are the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the Bastards of Boston Baseball. Second show this week, second show of the year. We're going to be talking about John Lester's retirement today kind of reflecting on his career, probably talk about his Hall of Fame candidacy. And then in the second segment, we are going to reveal our actual Hall of Fame ballots. So I am Terry Cushman, joined tonight by Jason Kelly, Job Goddard. How are you guys? You guys' first show of the year. Yeah, yeah, first one for the two of us. So uh, good time. First one for me in six weeks, so yeah, ready to roll here. Yeah. Excited yeah. to uh, talk some baseball finally, and uh, it hopefully looks like we'll be back again pretty soon, Terry, with um, everything going on with the, the trade negotiations. We might have a, a CBA negotiation to discuss at some point pretty soon. Yeah, and I, I'm not going to lie, and I, I touched on this in the last show, but I'm starting to get a little less confident that at least spring training is going to start on time. I'm not quite thinking the season's in danger yet, at least for the scheduled April 1st start. But but I guess, let's see. I thought it was today the core proposal was supposed to be submitted, but I uh, admittedly did not double-check that. But By the no, time... I think that's tomorrow. It'll be submitted. I believe it's tomorrow. Oh, tomorrow. My bad. Okay. Yep. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's just get right into it. Um, Were you guys surprised to to see this morning that John Lester's retirement uh, happened? I was surprised by the timing of it. Uh, I thought he might give it one more go, especially, you know, in a a trade negotiation scenario where he might have a little bit more time to rest up in the off season. I thought he might give it one more um, unceremonious way to go out for a guy that uh, gave it his all for 11 years, uh, really had one of the longest, I think peaks of any pitcher to not win a Cy Young um, real competitor. Uh, I thought his retirement statement, I guess uh, really hit it on the nail on the head, though, and um, I'm glad he went out the way he wanted to go out instead of somebody else telling him, look, you're not good enough anymore. Uh, he really wanted to call it quits on his own terms, and he did. Yeah, I was a little surprised only because I feel like Lester is – he's been a workhorse for so long. He's one of those players that you almost never expect to retire in some weird way. Like, you just expect him to keep, you know, keep plugging away and, and keep finding his way onto a back end of a rotation somewhere. I know that last year he was definitely, um, you know, he, he looked like he was really cooked at times. Um, so in that respect, I'm not shocked, but 
I thought at the very least he would try to land a spring training invite, maybe try to latch on to the, you know, like I said, back end of a rotation for maybe a fringe contender or something like that. But um, I think he just realized he doesn't have it anymore. And I, I think he is a prideful guy um, and he doesn't want to go out there and get shelled in, you know, four or five games and then call his retirement. So he uh, did it on his own terms and what a career, you know, good for him. His end of the season was actually not too bad. Uh, starting on his August 25th start, he only gave up one earned run, uh, followed by just one earned run in his two starts after. And in fact, never in his final, I'm adding this on the fly, in his final eight starts in seven of them, he gave up three runs or less. So he kind of went out on top and I guess he was really lucky with his defense. I, I kept seeing a lot of people talking about that because I was thinking, man, the Red Sox should have, uh, you know, made a play for him. It wouldn't have cost a lot, but he was still part of that run that St. Louis had to get themselves in, into a wild card slot. And I mean, they weren't looking quite as bad as Atlanta was, uh, you know, in early August, but, but he was part of that run. And I was a little surprised too, but one of the things though, is this whole COVID thing, you know, maybe I, I don't think he mentioned it at all, but I think some of the veterans are probably a little fed up with that and, you know, getting tested every day and, the close contact thing. I just think that the whole process is wearing on them and not just sports players. I mean, you're seeing it in, you know, in hospital, you know, with nursing staffs and all that. So I'm just wondering if, if the last couple of years kind of helped make that decision and, you know, cause things aren't looking so great right now, uh, you know, with the, the new variant, but, but he had a hell of a career and, and Jason, when you mentioned he was a horse, 13 straight years, 2008 through 2021, he had 28 or more starts. And in fact, his 28 starts were this previous season. So coming into it, he had had 30 or more. That's just remarkable. That's a horse right there. And to never have Tommy John, you know, since he got called up from the majors, all that workload, just unbelievable that he was so healthy all this time. And and he's 38 years old right now. So he would yeah. have been definitely, I think Scherzer is about the same age and Verlander's a little bit older and I'm sure there's one or two more, but uh, it, it was definitely. I think he was the fourth oldest pitcher in baseball. Was he? Okay. Charlie Morton's probably up there, actually. He's probably one of the he's other 40. ones. He's 40. Oh, Charlie no, Rich Hill. He's got to be up there. He's got to be the oldest, really. And yeah, Rich Hill's like 44, so I think he's the oldest. I think yeah. Rich Hill, Verlander, Lester, and... Um, Scherzer, probably. Scherzer. Yeah. So it's just incredible. And we end up with the oldest pitcher of them all. <laughs> I'm a big I'm a big Rich Hill fan. I, I don't know if I really wanted him with the, the rotation that we have, but... He's a guy. I, I forgot we added him. So <laughs> I, I think it <laughs> happened like within 24 hours of the Renfro trade is, is why. And it just didn't get a lot of uh, glory. And the James Paxton signing happened right around then. But, but I just, 
I just can't say any. Nothing pains me more. Like there's there's still Red Sox fans that are butt hurt about Mookie Betts not staying in Boston, but not retaining Lester it was way more painful to me because he wanted to pitch here, and that generous I'm being sarcastic seventy million dollar offer from the Red Sox. I just that was painful. It still hurts. It still hurts. Yeah. That that one absolutely still hurts because that trade didn't help them. So they they made they traded him away and they made this whole big deal about oh well you know and I remember Red Sox fans at the time saying he's going to come back. What are you all worried about? He he'll sign back after the season. Like you know it, it'll be fine. And then they lowballed him and he went somewhere else. And it just they bungled that whole situation so badly. So I agree with you that the the Lester situation was way worse than what happened with Mookie Betts. I think it's a lot worse, but for a, a different reason. And the main reason I think it's worse is because they tried to sell it by bringing in David Price. So we don't need John Lester. We have David Price. That so happened that was. after uh, Sherrington Price. got fired. But but we, you could – I'm not – I'm don't. i not like, saying that that was a cause and effect. I'm saying that the way they filled the void was to feed the, the fans David Price and – God, what a disaster that was for three of the four years that he was, you know, a core piece of the Red Sox organization. And half of the postseason that he actually was good in, because it wasn't until like Game Five against um, Houston where he ha- had a really and, good start. And even when he was pitching well, I don't know about you guys, but even when David Price, you know, pitched well, it was like, well, thanks for helping us win a World Series. Now get the hell out. Of here. Yeah. I'm the big. I'm the. I'm the. I was the president of the David Price. Haters club. I just, he's one of my least favorite ever to ever wear the Red Sox uniform. I love Dice K way more than I I love David Price. That's, that's my issue with the whole thing is every time I watch David Price, I'm like, it could have been John Lester and Lester's just better. And I liked him more and his story was more compelling. And he was, he was our guy, right? He was the farm system. He was, he should have been a Red Sox for life. They screwed that up big time. And, uh, Watching him win a World Series with the Cubs, I know it hurt me inside. Like I, it was great for him. I was happy for him. I was not something I ever wanted to see for a Red Sox fan. Watching John Lester play for somebody else hurts a lot more than watching Mookie Betts play elsewhere. I, I was actually rooting for the Indians, but mostly because I'm just such a big Francona guy that I, I just thought it would be such a great middle finger to the Red Sox to see him win. And he didn't have a great pitching staff that year because they were all injured. You know, Carrasco, uh, Clevenger, uh, and they they had one other key pitcher that uh, was also injured. But um, but here's here's something that has always made me sick to my stomach. At the end of the 2014 season, going into 2015, the Red Sox could have signed John Lester for 110 million. That's what it would have taken, apparently. You could have acquired Cole Hamels if you would have put Blake Swihart in the deal. And he had exactly $110 million left on his books and was still good for a few more years beyond that. So you would have had two pitchers that had won World Series that were aces or borderline aces for $220 million, but you went and spent almost all of that on David Price and got one pitcher. 217. How does that make you feel? 
That's disgusting. But um, so the next question with Lester here, is he a Hall of Famer? Here's, a, here's just a few basic stats. 366 ERA, maybe just a tad higher than you'd like to see it. Uh, 20, no, 2,488 strikeouts. If you want to round it up to 2,500, close enough. That's still, you know, that's a healthy number of strikeouts. Exactly 200 wins, which is usually the benchmark for a Hall of Fame pitcher. And then three World Series rings, two of which, of course, with the Boston Red Sox. So is he a Hall of Famer? I I say yes. And it's not a slam dunk. He's not a first ballot. He's probably going to hang around on the ballot for a while, I think, before he gets in. But the longevity is there for those who want to make a longevity case. I think the the stat that you said about the three, 13 straight seasons with, you know, 30 or more starts, I mean, that's – you're not going to see that again. Not likely anyway. I mean, it, it's going to take a rare talent and a rare team paired with that talent that actually lets them pitch 30 games a year because the game's just changing so much. Like, you're probably not going to see that again. He was a winner every time he was out there. He was a good postseason pitcher too. Not quite like a Kurt Schilling postseason pitcher, but I think he was like nine and seven in the postseason. He was four and one in World Series starts. Like he was so good when the game was on the line and when you really needed him. And like I said, not a slam dunk. It's probably going to take a couple of tries, but I think John Lester's a Hall of Famer because he just, he won. He did nothing but come into the league and win. And, you know, he did it for a long time. And, um, I just, I, I think that counts. So if he hadn't won World Series, I'd say probably not. I think the winning did put him sort of over the edge. But in my opinion, yeah, he's a Hall of Famer. Joe? Well, I'm looking at some of the, the postseason numbers now. That's what really is going to sway me here. I'm going to say yes. Three reasons. One, no one had the longevity you know, that he had, Jason mentioned it, 13 years, 30 starts. But his peak was really like 11 years. I mean, you see it now, right? There are guys who dominate. DeGrom, uh, less recently, somebody that we'll talk about at some point because he's on this ballot, Tim Lincecum, dominant. John Lester was dominant for the better part of eight years. I mean, maybe even more than that when I look at it. Generally, I'd say 2000 and. 10 through 2018 there's not a pitcher in major leagues that i would want pitching a big game for my team over john lester maybe a handful that says it all to me he's got a 255 postseason era he's got three world series titles he broke the curse for the you know the chicago cubs in 16 i say yes I also think it's going to take a couple of ballots. But uh, let's not forget, guys like Mike Messina are in the Hall of Fame. Mike Messina is in the Hall of Fame. John Lester deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I won't get into it too much. Um, I think you guys said it very well. But I do agree. I would also expect him to get into the Hall of Fame. So before we get to our ballots, one last big question about Lester. Which hat is he going to wear when he gets inducted? Unfortunately, he wears a Cubs hat. 
Yeah, I was going to say, unfortunately for everyone involved, it's going to be a Cubs hat. Um, he had more success there than he did here. Granted, he had a lot of success in both places. I know that the numbers are actually pretty close between the two of them. They're but, even, like dead yeah. even. But I think he, I think Chicago meant more to him in the end than Boston did. I think, uh, you know, Boston was great for him when he was here, but he, he, always, he still talks about Chicago and, and his time there to this day. I don't think he's going to talk that fondly about Boston. So I think he wears a Cubs hat. I actually disagree with you guys. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I mean, I can't say this with resounding confidence, but, but he did have a lot of nice things to say about the Red Sox early last summer when we were in the market. Cause naturally when the, the nationals were out of it and he was probably going to be a trade piece, he was asked, would you like to go back to Boston? And he said, I'd love to go back to Boston. It's where I started my career. It's a special place. Here's the tipping point for me. This is why I think he's going to choose the Red Sox. His love for Francona. Him and, and uh, Dustin Pedroia were the two closest players to Francona. When Francona was fired, they asked him if he had any ill will towards the organization. And I forgot what he said about actual ownership, but he said, I'm always going to text Dustin Pedroia weekly. I'm always going to text John Lester weekly. These are guys I'm never going to root against ever. And they were special players. And I just think that connection and I think going through his cancer treatments while he was in the Red Sox organization, I, I think um, might be meaningful to him. And um, I, I think he's going to choose the, you know, to go in with a Red Sox cap. And he, he did win one more title in Boston than he did in Chicago. So that's true. I, uh, I would you know, love I, it. I, I, I would love it. I, I want him in, in, in a Boston hat. I'd like to see them be there, but he chose to go to Chicago to, to follow Theo there. He broke the curse there. He wasn't part of the curse breaking team, you know, in Oh four, obviously still in the minor league system. Um, I, it just, I think his bigger accomplishments might have, you know, more accomplishments happened in Boston, but his bigger accomplishments happened in Chicago, and, and he picked the Cubs. You know, the Red Sox picked him, but he picked the Cubs, and uh, Red Sox ownership lowballed him. Well, interesting takes, and we're going to have to wait at least five years to find out, and like you guys said, probably a few beyond that at least. So It'll be um, one thing that'll be interesting. Him and Pedroia will be on the ballot at the same time. They one will. of those guys is getting in, they the other is not. I was gonna say, yeah. <laughs> I think one's getting in. Yeah. I'm not a Pedroia guy, and the Red Sox did not retire his number. So, you know, so I, I don't know. We'll see. All right. So we're gonna get into our regular Hall of Fame ballots here. So for the listening audience, there were 30 players on the ballot, and we're gonna reveal who we each picked. But before we get to who we actually picked, I'm going to give the list of players that none of us voted for. So here's the list. Again, we did not vote for these players, many of whom were very good players, but just not quite at the Hall of Fame level. So here we go. Bobby Abreu, Mark Burley, Carl Crawford. <laughs> Didn't make any of our ballots. Uh Pablo Sandoval 1.0, who uh, is Prince Fielder, by the way, did not make the cut. Ryan Howard, Tim Hudson, Torrey Hunter, who I loved, tried to make a case for, couldn't get there. 
Andrew Jones, Justin Morneau, Joe Nathan, Jonathan Papelbon, Jake Peavy, Andy Pettit, AJ Prezinski, Jimmy Rollins, Gary Sheffield, Mark Teixeira, Omar Vizquel. We did not give these players any votes. So none of these guys will be in the discussion going forward. So here's how we're going to do the next part before the the debates begin. I'm going to list off a bunch of players and just give me a yes or no. And we'll we'll lead off with Jason each one and then Job, and then I'll I'll give my vote. Uh, So I'm going to name them, and you say yes or no if you voted for them. Here we go. Todd Helton. No. No. Yes from me. Sammy Sosa. Nope. Yes. No from me. Jeff Kent. No. Yes. No from me. Scott Rowland. No. Yes. No from me. I'm seeing a, a Job theme here uh, so far. <laughs> here we go. It'll get more interesting uh, as we go here. Billy Wagner. Yes. No. No from me. Alex Rodriguez. Yes. No. No from me. Manny Ramirez. Yes. No, but God damn, I wanted to. <laughs> no from me. Kurt Schilling. No. Yes. Yes from me. Tim Lincecum. Yep. No. No from me. David Ortiz. Yes. Yes. You're going to notice a theme here for me, but uh, I was a no on David Ortiz. Roger Clemens. Yes. Yes. No for me. Barry Bonds. Yes. Yes. No for me. So I'm obviously, and and our longtime listeners already know, I'm not a big steroid guy. So that's uh, what led to a lot of no's. So I guess uh, in the case of uh, Barry Bonds, Jason, uh, why why is he, despite the controversy, like what? Why would you put him in? I mean, all time home run leader, um, and honestly, up until he got into his <clears throat> mid to late thirties, a pretty good five tool player, almost five tool, could run, could play the field, had power, got on base a lot. Um, and just, he was a force. He was, you know, there's a reason why he was, you know, sort of Mr. Intentional walk later in his career, because nobody wanted to face him. Nobody. He crushed lefties. He crushed righties. Um, I think the fact that he still played the field at, at, you know, at that point in his career, as old as he was, like he didn't, you know, he didn't do the, I want to, you know, move to first base or I want to go to an American league team and be a DH. Like he stayed with the giants. Um, and yeah, I mean, he is the all time home run leader. You can't, wh- whether people want to or not, they can't take that away from him. So keeping that guy out of the hall of fame, I don't know that that's a hard sell for me. So uh, he's in. He is without a doubt, the greatest five tool player to ever play the game. He was probably a Hall of Famer before the steroids. 40-40, a couple of seasons before the steroids. Definitely a Hall of Famer with the steroids. Even if you took away the home run record, 
which I think is a big selling point for a lot of people. I still think he's a Hall of Famer. Um, I have had the pleasure of meeting and speaking with uh, Mark Ferraniwada uh, and Lance Williams, who are both the reporters for the San Francisco Chronicle, who wrote Game of Shadows, who exposed the scandal for Balco and, and Barry Bonds originally. Um, talked to them about kind of their observations, what happened, what the timeline is. I'm convinced he was a Hall of Famer before he started doing steroids, and so I'm gonna I'm gonna stick with that. I think you can't have Cooperstown without him and still call it the Hall of Fame. Well, I'm gonna reiterate the fact that um, I'm not a steroids guy, and I'm gonna give my take on on this kind of with my Clemens take here in a minute because I just I kind of feel the same way about both of them despite the fact one's a pitcher one is um a hitter. It, it, it's fair enough i think a lot of people group them together i know jason and i are probably yes on both i'm gonna be honest jason i just assumed you were a yes on clemens um, yeah yeah i am yeah you know clemens is similar to bonds the most dominant player in his position that a lot of people have ever seen i mean i put him right up there with pedro as the best performance i ever watched was Pedro versus Clemens as a kid. I mean, it just doesn't get better than that. And, uh, you know, Terry, I, I know you hate the steroid guys, but that's going to be the divisive line there because Jason and I are both going to say Clemens was the best at what he did for so long. <laughs> Even, you know, without steroids, he's probably still in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, and uh, real quick, of the ballots that are known, I have like what would I guess be considered the official tracker up in front of me that's uh, updated. Ryan Thibodeau? I think hourly. Uh, Is it? He does a a great job um, tracking all the Hall of Fame ballots that come in, both anonymous and, and named. He publishes them all on Twitter. Everybody can go look for, you know, for those numbers. It says by Ryan, so I'm assuming that's going to be the same guy. It's it's bbhoftracker.com, Baseball Hall of Fame Tracker, yep. basically. So, um, so 41% of the ballots have been made public. Now, all these writers, it's up to them if they want to make them public or not. And some of them don't even have to reveal them anyway. Nobody has Cowards. to reveal them. And <laughs> I think they should all be revealed by the end. But, I mean everybody's been hating on Dan Shaughnessy all week long, but he put it out there though. He put his ballot out there and, you know, and is willing to take, you know, what everybody's giving him. Um, But of the 41% revealed Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are both pulling at 90, no, excuse me. They're pulling at 79.5% and 78.3% respectively bonds, just a little bit higher. Typically, those collapse when the unknown ballots, you know, when when they all get tallied up in the end, and then they they end up around in the fifty eight to sixty percent range, and they need seventy five percent to get in. Seventy five percent of the writers have to vote for you. So, so it's not looking good. Uh, we'll get into another player who's uh, highly up there, but um, there's a good possibility nobody gets in this year. I don't know when the last time that happened, if it's ever happened, but it's certainly a possibility this year. So do you want to give a quick take on Clemens, Jason? Yeah, I mean, again, with Bonds, I I sort of said he was one of the most dominant 
hitters in the game. Roger Clemens, during his career, was the most dominant pitcher in the game. Seven-time Cy Young. He won an MVP, um, you know, over 350 wins. Um, I don't even know the, the total strikeouts. Did he get to 5,000? He was certainly close. 4,600. Uh, I, I, I don't see 5,000. Um, he was 4,600, yeah. 4,916 innings, 4,185 strikeouts. Okay, so he had a lot. So, um, yeah, just crazy, ridiculous numbers. You'll never see a pitcher do that again. Um, and, yeah, we you know, we know there's something else with that. But, again, I just – I don't take away what these guys actually went out there and did on the field. So, Roger Clemens, best pitcher of his time, um, he, no-brainer to me. Terry, I know you're uh... – an anti-steroid guy, but the, the stat that I have for Clemens is a little bit mind-blowing. We just had a conversation about John Lester and how we th- we think he's going to get in. I'm, I'm a lot younger than you guys, right? Roger Clemens won 240 games before I was born. <laughs> I'm just eyeballing it. I didn't do that math. And what year was that for the audience? I was born in 98. I mean, he won 200 games before I was born. And uh, by all reporting, the steroid stuff really started in 2001. Oh, I He's don't think so. He's already pretty close to 270 uh, at that point. I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. He would have been in the Hall of Fame anyway. Um, well, if I'm not, I could be mistaken, but I think with the, the year he went from, he finished with the Blue Jays and then I think signed with the Yankees. Or perhaps there was a trade, but somewhere in between, he, if I'm not mistaken. Houston. In between. No, no, that was he, – he had two separate stints with the Yankees. So Houston was in between the first and second stints, actually, is how that went. So it was Toronto in 96, and then I think the Yankees right after, or in 98, something like that. Toronto, 97 and 98. The Yankees, 99 through okay. 03. So, Houston, 04 through 06, and then 07 with the Yankees. Right. So – he gained like very suddenly regained, I should say four miles per hour on his fastball. If I'm not mistaken, it was dramatic and say what you want about it. I mean, you know, there's a lot of evidence or, you know, previous testimony of, of him having taken it, but this the year on that, by the way, that, that he regained that, that speed with the Yankees uh, looks like 2001. He really? was an all-star. He won. 20 games. I, I wish I looked it up, but he, here's, here's part of my problem here. I'm a big integrity guy. It's important to me. And it, it's not just with the hall of fame. I mean, that's why I hated David price. He just wasn't accountable. He was a punk in the media. I just, I couldn't stand him. I, I don't think any of us like John lackey for a couple of years for similar reasons. I'm trying to think off the top of my head, some other players I'm sure they have been, Adrian Gonzalez, not the there are there are plenty. Not the right? coziest guy. So I, I'm just that's why that's part of it for me though. I'm I'm a big integrity guy. And and then when you when you get into the Hall of Fame discussion, when people cheat, I'm just I'm done. I just I don't trust them. Their stats for at least a part of their career are a little inflated. And here's another huge problem, and nobody talks about this. Bonds and Clemens haven't confessed. They haven't said, okay, my bad. 
I made a terrible mistake at some point in his in my career. A Rod did of all people, and uh, he's he's had problems even in the past year or two. If you want to throw the J Lo stuff in, but it, it's a it's a big thing for me, and I think if. Now, maybe for legal reasons, they might not have been able to do it. But if you go back at least two or three years and maybe they confessed and apologized and owned up to it, they might not have won my sympathy, but they might have won the sympathy of a few more writers and and helped their chances a little bit. Well, let's let, let's be honest here. They're, they're both getting in on alumni vote from the Players Association in five years anyway whether they get in by the writers or not. You mean the Veterans Committee? The Veterans Committee is going to vote them in anyway. So it's a, a moot point for you know for a lot of reasons. Um, but if you think about this, Terry, right, just in a vacuum, his 13 years in Boston, which he left Boston the year I was born. I always knew him as a Yankee. 192 wins, 306 ERA. He won 63.4% of his games, and he gave up 943 runs in 13 seasons. Those are borderline numbers for the Hall of Fame, and then you can count 11 more years of pro baseball. It's just a tough case to, to say that he's not in on talent. I just can't get there. I Fair just, enough. I just can't get there. And with the Veterans Committee, I'm not. I'll admit there's a possibility he they might have a better chance of getting in via that route. But Joe Morgan, he just died recently, but a couple of years ago, he gave this speech. I don't remember if it was in Cooperstown, but he was a part of the Veterans Committee who votes these guys in, and he's he says that that you know he doesn't support them getting in. And historically, I mean, if you look at other cheating allegations and, and another one more recently, the, the Astros uh, situation. Now I know apples and oranges here to a degree, but, but players typically do frown on cheating. So, and the veterans committee is all players. That, that's why it's called the veterans committee. So um, I, I'm not entirely convinced they'll, they'll definitely get in, but they'll, they'll have a better shot. I think there's what 16 of them. So they need 12 out of the 16 votes is, is how that works. Well, here's the thing is baseball is changing as far as how it views statistics, how it views players. Uh, It's become a much more statistically driven sport. But it's also become a much more popular uh, medium for players to get their image out there. If you'd asked me three years ago, would David Ortiz be a potential first ballot Hall of Famer? I would have said no way, like no chance in hell. If you asked me four years ago if A-Rod was going to be in the conversation, I would have said you're smoking something, right? Like there's just no way that those guys were going to rehabilitate their images well enough. And now A-Rod is on Sunday Night Baseball. He's the most hated commentator in sports. He's He's cheating on J-Lo. Right. So – There's a popularity factor that I think and an image factor with the players that changes everything. And I think in five, six years, when some of the Veterans Committee players are 
guys who played after the steroid era and not during or before, things are going to change. Well, all right, let's, um, we know where we stand. I, I don't think any minds got changed here, but, um, next up kind of somewhat isn't too far from, uh, those types of conversations. David Ortiz, uh, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, so Ortiz is a yes for me. Again, um, I know that there is a little something there. It's much his case is much smaller than that of you know Clemens, Bonds, Manny, A Rod because his was just a name on a list, um, and his name was on that list. Let's not deny it. I think this show is you know one of the few in Boston that doesn't deny it, doesn't act like it didn't happen. It did happen, um, but that was at a certain point in his career, and I think when you look at the actual damage that he did and the numbers he put up and the success that he had, it was all what? Oh, three on. And from Oh three on, at least from what I've heard and what, from, we understand he had never tested positive. He never, you know, none of that ever popped up. And, and the commissioner he, came out and cleared him, right? That was the whole. Sure. Yeah. Big, and big step. So, and for that, for that span of his career for the next 13 years until he retired, David Ortiz was the greatest clutch hitter in baseball. Just period, end of story. He was the best DH in baseball. He pretty much single-handedly won the Red Sox a World Series in there with the performance. With the numbers, his World Series numbers are bananas. Like, you would think that it was, they're like video game numbers. So he was, he was absolutely insane. I think the numbers are there overall. I know some people say his career numbers actually don't quite stack up. I disagree. I think they do um, in terms of total home runs, you know, total hits, all that stuff. Um, and just all the winning, all the clutch hitting, all the moments he provided, he was the most feared hitter in the game during his career. And to me, that makes him just a shoe in Joe. I would say shoe in is a little bit strong. For me, I, I mean, I, I love David Ortiz. Obviously, we all love David Ortiz. His numbers, I think, are just a little bit shy when I look at them. Um, but when you look at some of the accolades that he collected, and I don't have all-star games in front of me because, to be honest, I don't care. Um, but 03, 04, 5, 6, 7 all the way until he retired in 16. He's got seven top five MVP finishes. Never won one. The one year that he should have won, he, he obviously missed out to A-Rod uh, in his, his big home run season. He changed baseball in Boston. I mean, Boston was always a, a baseball town, but it was kind of the the downtrodden, you know, everybody likes everybody likes the, the team, but they suck, and it's somewhat like the Bears now. It's people kind of look at them and just, like, laugh at you. Like, they, you know, you're pathetic. Um, it's become a winning culture built on his back. He's been a part of so many meaningful clutch moments in franchise history, in baseball history, uh, between the curse and having the best World Series anyone's ever had, like Jason mentioned, 
you just can't not put him in the Hall of Fame. It's the Hall of Fame, right? It's not the Hall of Very Good, understandable, but uh, his numbers are pretty close. And what's not there can be made up for by the fact that he won a lot and the team wouldn't have gotten there without him. I was just trying to quickly uh, pull up some stats here. Um, let me say this before I give my David Ortiz take. I don't... A, a lot of players were, were doing it back then, and I, I don't question the fact that a lot of them felt like they had to do it to either remain relevant in the majors or get to that next level to, to get those massive contracts that were dealt out at the time. Like I get it. I, I really do. But I unfortunately have to still put him in the bonds and, and Clemens category. And I'm just, just to try to point out the, uh, the era here. I'm counting them out loud here. One, two, three, four, five, six. On the 2004 Boston Red Sox team, six players hit 17 or more home runs. Ortiz hit 41, Manny hit 43, Damon 20, uh, Bellhorn hit 17, which is insane to me. I'm just, I can't believe that. Kevin Millar, 18, Jason Veritek, 18. So I just think that was a part of the era. I'm not saying all those guys were dirty, but that's a ton of home runs for one team for for your core lineup I, I would say um and David Ortiz in 2006 topped out at 54 home runs he never hit more than 38 again in a season after that and that was ironically his final season he hit 38 well home now runs. here's the thing he never hit that many home runs again what happened between 06 and Oh, eight, right? I think he, he probably Manny Ramirez. They replaced Manny Ramirez, one of the most feared hitters in the game, with Jason Bay, and then Ortiz wasn't getting grooved fastballs. That, that's that's the big change. He had a rough couple of years there for sure. I mean, there were people were speculating whether he was done or not. I mean, it was really bad in a couple of those seasons, uh, specifically the first halves of those seasons. He he did rebound pretty well, but. Um, but that that's where the line was drawn and three of his uh two out of his three championships were after that threshold so i don't know if if in fact he was a user it probably wasn't after 2006 let's say cuz that's there's a, a an obvious cutoff there so i i don't i don't know whether he did them or not but he was in that infamous report and I've heard Rob Manfred say myself, as you guys have, that maybe the data wasn't super reliable, but um, but I unfortunately that's I have to be consistent. I can't say no to to Clemens, no to Bonds, and and yes to David Ortiz. So that's why he's I, I can't I just can't do it. So I have a couple of, of, of quick things here, Terry, about this, right? Because you and I are similar in the not liking the steroids guys, right? But I draw the line, you know, I have Sosa, I have Bonds, I have Clemens. I have McGuire, right? If I had to put him in, I'd put him in. 
anyone who cheated after they changed the rules in 03 is not on my list. You don't see A-Rod. We'll talk about Manny in a minute. Um, so it, it's tough to to make that justification. But, you know, interestingly enough, I got this issue today, Sports Illustrated in the mail from my grandmother. My great uncle had saved it from, uh, you know, 2016. When was the last time an athlete retired on top like David Ortiz? I mean, this guy had the greatest postseason ever and then walked away. Well, that was. If he sticks around two more years, he's going to get all those numbers that you're talking about are borderline. But he walked away on top. Yeah, that was 2016, and we got swept by Cleveland that year. But, um, but I mean, he hit 688 in the 2013 World Series. 688, and that number came down to that. He was like in the seven or eight hundreds for most of the series, and then it it cooled off to a you know a meager 688. Um, and then 2004 doesn't happen. Those two epic walk-offs in the ALCS against the Yankees, and like one was a 14-inning walk-off, the other was a 15-inning walk-off. We don't reverse the curse that year without him. Uh, he wasn't super spectacular in 2007. That was the the Manny Ramirez, Mike Lowell show for for a lot of it. But, but well, and and to answer your question, Joe, who retires on top the way he did? I mean, Buster Posey just did. Now he didn't, he didn't win the World Series, but Buster Posey had one of his best career years last year, and he said, "I'm done." I and think he might get in. Yeah, and he he's going to be an interesting case when he comes up. Um, you know, and I, I think with Posey, with Ortiz, some of these guys, it's just like Ortiz said. You know, after he retired, he said, "My feet are a mess." He's like, "I, I can barely walk right now." Like that's how bad his Achilles and his whole you know lower extremities have been. So I'm sure Posey's got. A similar kind of thing going on the some of the best athletes are actually the ones that do walk away on top and they're just like no i'm done i'm not sticking around and breaking my body anymore um you know dustin pedroia kind of did the opposite he tried to hang around too many more years than he should have and probably set himself back in terms of feeling like a normal person ever again so i think just some of these guys know that you know, their bodies just, they, they listen to their bodies better than most of us can. They just go, you know what? It's over. I, yeah, I agree with you, Jason. I, and Posey's an interesting case. I just think the fact that they walk away on top and they have these, you know, some people call borderline cases with the numbers. It's like, I, I think about Jim Tomey, for example, it's the opposite, right? He held on until he could reach all the milestones. And at the end, it was like he's hitting 188 or something. Um, and it was just so he could reach, you know, 600 and all this stuff. It's great. It's cool that you reach the number, but it's not peak you, right? So I look at Albert Pujols, and Pujols is still playing. He loves the game, all that stuff. If Pujols walked away post-Cardinals, he's still in the Hall of Fame. And in fact, he's probably going to, over the next three years, even as he reaches some of these milestones, hurt his case because his numbers are going to be so bad that reaching those milestones is going to cost him. He won't have a career 300 average ever again, which it was his average until last season. It's now dropped to like 296. He'll never reach those milestones again. So, you know, I feel like some players don't get the credit that they should for walking away on top. It's really, I think, bolsters their case. I think in Posey's case, he had just had a kid 
within the last year. And I, I think I mentioned the COVID things with uh, Lester. I just think, I just think playing baseball was just too much of a hassle. And ha- ha- he was one of the few players who opted out of the 2020 season. And I, he did. I, he has two twins that he adopted actually Terry that okay. have uh, some serious health conditions. Okay. So he walked away, just said, it's not worth it for me. Uh, I, so I imagine that you're probably right. He yeah. probably had a certain amount of that in his wanted to be with family at this point. And he, he had made a ton of money as well. Um, as far as going out on top, I mean, there, I'm sure there are a couple other examples in baseball, but I just can't think of any off the top of my head in football. You have Peyton Manning wasn't at the top of his game, but he did retire uh, right Andrew after luck. After winning a championship. Uh, Andrew Luck, uh, another one, John Elway. And the cool thing about him was he won the first one. I'm like, yeah, retire. This is the this is the Cinderella story. Don't don't ruin it. And then he comes back and wins another one anyway. And then he retired. Uh, so that was uh, pretty good. He was uh, in his upper 30s. But, but yeah, he definitely had one of the best. D- David Ortiz did, had one of the best seasons of his career when he retired. But I hope uh, the audience forgives me. For uh, pulling a Shaughnessy here, but but I feel the way I feel. Uh, all right, Jason, make your case. Tim Lincecum. Yeah, uh, this is my sort of Shaughnessy Jeff Kent pick. Um, I'm I'm a big Tim Lincecum guy, and I know that I'm probably the only one. Um, he, you know, and as a matter of fact, like looking at the tracker, he may not even get the 5% to be on the ballot next year. So he might be a one and done, never gets on the ballot again. But I think Tim Lincecum, for as short of a career as he had, was one of the most dominant pitchers you will ever see. He was appointment television, which speaking as a guy who lives on the East Coast and Lincecum pitched out on the West Coast, like that's saying something. Like I, he was one of the few pitchers that like, or a few players in general that I wanted to stay up late and watch him pitch, not just because of the funky delivery and, you know, the hair and everything like, because he was absolutely dominant and filthy. And then in terms of accolades, three time world series champ, back-to-back Cy Young winner. Um, When you look at the list of back-to-back Cy Young winners, they're all hall of famers or they're all guys who should be in the hall of fame. Like Clemens is on that list. Pedro's on that list. Um, you know, Randy Johnson, Jim Palmer, Sandy Koufax. So I just, I think for that, even though it was a short period of time, it was only about four years where he was really that dominant. I still think he deserves a nod. He deserves to get in. He played for 10 years. Ultimately, uh, that's not very long, but Ralph Kiner played for 10 years. He's in the Hall of Fame. Now, maybe you could argue he had a better 10 years than Linscombe did because Linscombe's final years were kind of garbage but i think for what he did in such a short amount of time i don't think that he's one of those cases where i toss out the longevity thing and i just go look at what he did in a short sample and one one guy who this is going to become an issue for when his career is over jacob de watch jacob de the next couple of years because he's kind of on a similar track not in terms of like He's going to have more successful seasons than Linscombe ended up with. But Jacob DeGrom is already 33. He doesn't have 100 wins yet. You guys are talking about how the 200 win is sort of like the benchmark for Hall of Fame pitchers. DeGrom's never going to get there. He's probably not even going to get to 150. We're looking at Jacob DeGrom maybe getting, what, 
110 if he's lucky 120 now part of that's because he's you know he's been on the Mets his whole career so that's his own fault um but you know I I don't I don't think that you have you can just look at and say well he didn't play long enough so he can't get in I think that there is a spot in the Hall of Fame for guys who even if they didn't play for a long time they had such a pronounced impact on the game that they deserve a spot and to me Tim Linscombe deserves one of those spots you're doing a really good job convincing me, Jason. I, I feel bad that I'm not voting for him because, you know, me at what I can't even remember what year it was that he was so dominant the first time. Um, 2008, maybe? 2007. 2007. Okay. Yeah. That's like my peak, you know, high school, middle school, even really, it's middle school for me. That's like middle school. I'm living in Europe. I'm watching those games on delay. Like I'm watching them the next day recorded. And sometimes you wake up and it's like 6 a.m. getting ready for school and it's extra innings and the game's still on. It's like, oh, if I rewind it really fast, I can see if Linscombe's still in the game because it's the eighth inning. He might still be in the game. Like so dominant and such a a great peak that I, I want to vote for him but he doesn't have a single one of those benchmark numbers that I I look for that I just don't think that I could justify it. I think DeGrom is a, a very similar comparison. Now, people who watch DeGrom now, they go, oh, but he throws 100. It's like, you got to compare to your era. In 2007, no one could do what Tim Linscombe is doing. 2008, the same. And I think he's going to get the 5% to stay on the ballot. I think he deserves to be on the ballot but uh, just not there long enough. It's just too short, and that, that's what's going to do him in. Um, popular guy fell off a cliff. I think everybody was rooting for him to come back. I mean, baseball was a, was a more intriguing sport when you have a guy like Lincecum competing for the Cy Young. Uh, as Jason mentioned, he won two of them. Both of them came in his second and third years as a pro, respectively. So started out hot. I mean, how long did we wait for Erod to be super, somewhat solid? And it took until 2019 for for him to get there. Um, a couple of those championships, though. 2012. I mean, 518 ERA. That was uh, his first real bad year. Uh, and then in, in 2014, had a just, just shy of a five. He was a 4.74. So he wasn't really a, a huge part of those seasons. So I, I think, unfortunately, he's just, he could be one and done. I, I don't know how the, the remaining roughly 60% of the ballots will, will come out. But um, a couple other guys we could spend some time on before we wrap. Manny Ramirez. Uh, I'll just say right out of the gates, those domestic violence charges, I, I think those are why he's not even getting, you know, Barry Bonds type numbers. Or not that he was quite as good, but he's not even close. <laughs> well, he was suspended twice also while playing in Major League Baseball for a season and 50 games back to back and then moved to Japan for some baseball as well. I think that's a big piece of it. 
he's remembered for those suspensions as much as for the numbers now. Um, everyone knew he was cheating. He didn't even try to hide that he was cheating. Um, so that's a big piece. But there's no doubt that the off-the-field stuff is definitely something that, you know, that voters care about. You see it with Vizquel, who last year looked like he was definitely going to get in, a shoe-in to get in. This year, domestic violence charges come out. He's dropped to 8%. He's probably not going to be on the ballot next year. Um, and you see it with Curt Schilling. I mean, Curt Schilling is a case we're going to probably have to break down. Um, voters care about that stuff. Well, voters care about that stuff now. Um, I mean, Bobby Cox was a domestic abuser, and he's in. Um, so I, I think there's someone else, too. Wasn't Was it Mantle or there was someone else who was, like, a big drinker and wife beater oh, he, back in the back in the black and white era of, of baseball? I was it Mantle? I'm not sure. He was a big drinker for sure, probably the okay. most legendary, uh, aside from Wade Boggs, of course. So it, the whole morality clause of, of the Hall of Fame, I, unless you actually assault someone or kill someone, I, I, I mean, I don't know. I, like whatever, you know. There's so there's so many of those. Like, I'm just focused on what's I, I mean, on I understand the field. That, Jason, but it's it's 2022 now, right? Like, uh, well, yeah. So and that's why post, he won't get in. The, the post-Trump era, the post uh, as as call it <laughs> cancel culture era, which. Um, you know, no matter how you think about things, no matter how you, you view the, the political world that we live in, these are all things that are now at the fore. And I think in some ways, probably rightfully so. I won't vote for Viscal for that reason. Um, on the other side of it, I, I did tick Curtis Schilling's box. So there are certain things that'll Was you know, a... voting and uh, there are certain things that won't. Yeah, he's uh, on there. He's a compiler, though, in, in my opinion, you know. Well, no, I meant is Vizquel, uh, he was a domestic abuser or something like that? Oh, he's got some creepy charges, yeah. He's got, oh, yeah, okay. he's got a couple yeah. of charges came out last year. I thought that was, I thought that was, no, I thought that was Alomar. That's why. No. Wasn't that, no. Okay. I, I think Definitely. that happened, too. Might have been him, too. But it, with Manny, it was just, the all the cheating and stuff aside, he was one of the smartest hitters that I've ever seen. Probably the smartest hitter I've ever seen. I remember the story of him talking about how, like, he would intentionally swing and miss at pitches that he liked so that he would get the pitch again. And he could crack it 500 feet. And like, that's not all that sly. Like if you're a decent pitcher, you know that he's doing that, but like, that's just how cerebral he was. And it's really a shame that like he went off the rails as much as he did, because I really think he was, I think he studied the game more than any other hitter of his era. And that's what made him so good. I mean, he was ahead of the curve on that. In entire study of baseball. If you gave him the tools that J.D. Martinez uses in between at-bats, I mean, we might be looking at 800 home runs from Manny. Who knows? Um, because he was one of those guys. He was meticulous, Jason. You're absolutely right. He was kind of goofy, too, which makes it hilarious that he was able that to was out favorite. smart pitchers. Yeah, one of my favorite stories, I, I heard this a long time ago, and he was with the Indians, and it, he might have been a rookie or maybe he was in his second year, but the O.J. Simpson chase was literally happening live, and everybody was watching it, and one of his teammates convinced him that it was another one of the Indians guys in that van. It wasn't O.J., and, and Manny believed it, and it was it was hilarious. But he, he I mean, I was Manny for Halloween. Manny was a cultural thing. Like, I was a kid growing up. I was Manny Ramirez, like, three straight years. 
in 2011, my, my, that was the beer and chicken year. Um, my friend's son, uh, put on a, a Red Sox jersey and went around with an empty beer case, like a 30 pack and, uh, was telling his neighbors he was John Lackey. <laughs> <laughs> Not all feels weird. That was funny. Yeah. Um, one last thing about Manny. I mean, he was kind of an ass in some ways. Excuse my language. I, I hope that's not too vulgar for the audience. But um, he had the incident with the clubhouse attendant, that, or I think it was a travel attendant. He knocked Jack him over. McCormick. Yeah, and that was probably the final straw as to why he got traded uh, in 2008. And then there was another time. It just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. I think he went to the White Sox, didn't he, for a season after uh, the Dodgers. And it wasn't his introductory press conference, but he was sitting before the media and he decided that he was only going to speak through his translator. And this is like his 18th year in MLB. And he's like, speaks English. I'm like, so why are you, why are you making the media, you know, go through the hassle? So, um, I'm just, I'm not surprised that he's polling much lower than everyone else. So, uh, let's see, just a couple more. We won't spend much time on all also, of our Also, uh, Terry, I don't know if you know this, and, and Jason, Manny Ramirez Jr. is uh, 15 in the Dominican Republic, and he's breaking like every record known to man for home runs and average. Can, can we get him on the Red Sox? Like, ASAP, like, it works for Vlad Guerrero Jr. I'm just, I'm ready to turn the page. And yeah, well, well, Vlad, Vlad Guerrero's dad wasn't a maniac, so I don't know. I I, I think I might let someone else take a shot <laughs> on Manny Junior. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah could. I I'm I'm a little intrigued. I'm not gonna lie. Uh, here's another one that's a bit of a um, kind of a you know a, a lightning rod for debate. Uh, Kurt Schilling. Now, um, Job and I do have him, but Jason, go ahead. You were the negative. Yeah, he falls just short for me. Um, it has nothing to do with his off the field stuff. Again, I you know, I don't take that really into account. Um, but on the field, like the the thing that I always think of for the Hall of Fame is at any point in your career, were you the best, the absolute best player at your position? I don't think Kurt Schilling was ever the best pitcher in baseball. I think he was really good for a lot of years. I think he was excellent in the postseason, but was Kurt Schilling ever like a dominant, like a truly dominant pitcher? I just, I don't think so. I, I don't think he ever quite fit that criteria. Um, well, he, was, he had three years, Jason, where he was uh, top two in Cy Young voting. Another year where he was number four, but didn't no win Cy it though. Young. Didn't win it. Yeah, I mean, he he never won a Cy Young. Now he did win. A World Series MVP. He does have an NLCS MVP, so you can definitely take those into account. But I just never viewed him as like this dominant, you know, total ace of a pitcher. I just thought he was really good for a number of years. But um, it's the Hall of Fame, not the Hall of Really Good. So I think he falls just short. Go ahead, Joe. I mean, it, this one's interesting to me. It's one of the more interesting cases on the ballot. Obviously, you know, I only got to see the end of his career. I only really remember the, the tail end with Arizona and Boston. I don't remember him in Philly. I wasn't even born yet when he was in, in Houston and Baltimore. Um, I just remember thinking to myself, 
big game, who do I want on the mound? And the answer was always Randy Johnson. And the second answer was always Kurt Schilling. If Pedro wasn't in baseball at the time, I think Kurt Schilling is the best player at his position for probably five years. But Pedro's around, and uh, there was nobody ever that had the peak that Pedro had. So I'm willing to give Kurt Schilling a pass. Like any two-year or three-year span in baseball that he had the numbers that he had, he would have won the Cy Young any other year in the entire history of Major League Baseball. But because Pedro decided in 99 and 2000 that he was going to pitch like a god, everyone else had to take a backseat. I definitely have him in the Hall of Fame. Uh, I'm not going to cry foul when he doesn't make it. This is his final year of eligibility, so he's chances are he's not going to get in. I wonder how the Veterans Committee might look at it. I, I think he will have a shot there. But well, I, I, Terry, I think, interestingly enough, right, I mean, he wrote a letter to the the Baseball Writers of America that he published that was basically like, you all stink at your jobs. You don't deserve to cover baseball. Like, he was nasty, and his off-the-field stuff is, is such baggage. I don't think he'll get in. But I don't think he writes that letter if he doesn't think he's going to get in on the Veterans Committee. Um, so I wonder if there's a wink nod there. I'm not sure. He did write that at the end of last season when he just barely missed and he's pulling lower this year. So that letter rubbed some writers the wrong way and even lessened his chances. But, but he, he is outspoken uh, politically. He works for Breitbart, which is a highly conservative Republican publication. And I mean, I, a big part of the media, whether it's sports or regular news, does tend to be liberal. So that's gonna that's certainly gonna hurt him. But with me being an integrity guy on the Bonds Clemens issue, I can't really cry foul. Uh, even though the shilling stuff doesn't bother me, I can see how it might bother some other people. But as far as a player, and let me also point out all this controversy uh, that that I just kind of alluded to. That all happened after his career. There weren't any controversies like this during his career. So this is all after his career as well. I wanted to point that out. It was after he brought a gun into the, the studio at WEI. That's what sparked the whole political debate with Kurt Schilling. And I, I know that at one point there was conversation about him running for Congress. Like He's now become a, a different person than he was during his playing career. Well, he also had that issue uh, in Rhode Island, which you're probably more familiar with, um, where a bunch of investors got kind of screwed. But um, so that that for sure wouldn't have helped him uh, politically either. But two reasons why. I mean, he is borderline, admittedly, in some areas. But here's two reasons why I would definitely put him in. Number one, 11 and two in the postseason. 11 and 2. That's nails. Find a better percentage than that. Uh, I'm sure there were some no decisions in there. He had, uh, well, no, let's see. I'll, I'm good at doing math. So he had 13 starts. So he, he had one no decision somewhere in there. Oh, no, 11 and 2 is 13. Cushman can't do math. Okay. <laughs> I'm uh, good at doing math. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason, I was thinking that it added up to 12. Yeah. But anyway, so nonetheless, very dominant. 11 and 2. Second reason, and this is the biggest of all, he compiled these stats 
during the steroid era. Most of his career took place over the steroid era. There's no reason for me to suspect he ever was roided. And he was still a top pitcher, a top 10 or 15 pitcher for most of his career. And for that reason, the the fact he was still successful against a lot of these guys, I would put him into the Hall of Fame. And he, he does have three rings. His sock is sitting in the Hall of Fame. It is, his bloody right? like, sock. How do you not put him in the Hall of Fame when you... We value in the sport postseason success above all. Like, I understand you play 162, but if you can't get it done in October, you don't make the cut. That's just it. You want to be great, you win in October, and that's what Curtis Schilling was. I mean, he was an October stud. You got to put him in the Hall of Fame. I I would. Unfortunately, uh, he's going to need 12 votes from the the Veterans Committee in uh, however many years it it takes. But um, all right. So we don't really have a ton of time here. I I think we can. Job, did you have A-Rod getting in or no? I did not. Uh, I maintain the fact that similar to Manny, anybody who cheated post-2004, that I can confirm cheated post-2004. I will not vote for the the exception that I make there is is obviously uh, Bonds and Clemens. I think they were Hall of Famers before the cheating, so I I let those guys in. But anybody who cheated after that, I I don't let them in. If you cheated before it was quote unquote cheating, it's just getting an edge. I mean, you got to do it to keep up with McGuire, and uh, I understand it. And Jason, you're simply, I mean. The same logic as as the rest of them, I'm sure. The stats yeah. were there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Same logic. Yep. Yeah. I just want to point out that it's hilarious to me that Ortiz is getting thirty percent more than him. It's both their first years on the ballot, and <laughs> well, Ortiz everybody... got shot. He did, and maybe that gets some sympathy. Uh, I'm just kidding. Ortiz though. got Ortiz... shot. A Rod blew it with J Lo. So I mean, <laughs> yeah, no, that also, does Ortiz it. Ortiz had postseason success that A Rod did not have. Right. <laughs> Think about the accolades and everything like that. Even when A-Rod won in 09, was A-Rod really ever the face of the Yankees? I mean, no, it's Derek Jeter. It's it's Mariano Rivera. It's even to an extent Jorge Posada before it's A-Rod. It was never his team. If he'd done it in Seattle, uh, you know, after Ken Griffey or even in Texas, then he's probably in the Hall of Fame. But because he does it in New York and he's the third guy and – Everybody hates A-Rod, at least up until he retired and hired whoever his PR person is. Give that PR person a raise because, holy good God, did they revamp his image um, from from, uh, 14 to now when he was suspended for a year. Um, I just don't see it. Uh, I don't see how you can vote for him. I don't like him. I uh, feel the same way, and uh, there's – He's got a lot of issues, too, as far as character. My favorite thing to point out was, um, according to Manfred, a person close to Rodriguez tried to have uh, Rodriguez, a steroid dealer, uh, possibly whacked, and watched the 60 Minutes interview on... Aaron Rodgers, uh, not Aaron Rodgers, uh, Aaron Hernandez. That's my guess. If I had to wager a guess, Aaron Hernandez and A-Rod, probably buying from the same guy down in Florida. Well, it was uh, Tony Bosch. There's a there's a funny uh, thing on Netflix if you have time, and it's called Screwball, and it's all it's about a good, that good documentary. Yeah, I thought it was hilarious. Yeah. Um, 
All right. So we won't get into Billy Wagner, Scott Rowland, Jeff Kent, Sammy Sosa. These are all, you know, kind of fringe guys. I, I only voted for two guys. I only said yes to two guys. Uh, one of them was Schilling and the other was Todd Helton and he's getting 57% of the vote. So he's doing good. I, I don't know how many more years of eligibility he has. I think it's at least six or seven, but here's the one stat that's just incredible to me. And maybe bonds might have a higher one, but what, what's my favorite stat? Do you guys remember? What am I always harping on during the season? I have no idea. On base percentage, on base percentage. I was going to say, it's like OBP uh, yeah, or slugging. I or lean on that right, so yeah. hard. Todd Helton was a career uh, 414 guy on base. 414. And Okay, I, can I tick his box now? You <laughs> sold me. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was. And only 377 home runs. I wonder if he broke the 400 barrier, if that might have might have got him in or perhaps just a little closer at this point to 75%, but only, only let's see, 369 home runs uh, and 1,400 uh, runs batted in. He probably didn't have a ton of base runners in front of him in Colorado. Um, Troy not Tula- on those teams. Yeah, Troy Tulowitzki was a good player. I'm not sure where they uh, lined up. Admittedly, I, I haven't watched many uh, Rockies games over the years. Uh, I'm just trying to see his uh, playoff numbers. Was he even in the playoffs? Yeah, because I was we, just about to say we, what playoff numbers. Well, we—I mean, he was on the World Series team in 2007. We beat them, um, but he hit 333 yeah. in the World Series, 412. Let's see, any home runs? No home runs. Only one run driven in. That's probably why they got swept. But um, <laughs> I didn't realize that he was around for so long. I'm looking at his numbers now, a little bit more in depth. 17 years. I mean, it's a lot of baseball. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I would put him in. I just think he's one of those sneaky, underrated guys. I think he will have a shot towards the end. It, it'll probably take his ninth or tenth year to get him in if he does. But um, he's lacking some accolades here, though. He's got no. Uh, he's got one. I'm sorry. Top five MVP finish. He's only got five all-star games, um, two gold gloves. I mean, that's that's a little short. Yeah, I don't know. He got on base. He got on base. <laughs> I'm going to put you in a, a little collab. I'm going to have one of my, my video guys do it. I'm going to put uh, Terry in as Peter Brand. You know, <laughs> like, right into the money wall clip. You and Jonah Hill. It's seamless. Seamless transition, really. I'm almost that funny. He, uh, I watched The Wolf of Wall Street, and he kind of plays kind of a goofy role. And have you guys seen the new one on Netflix with Leonardo DiCaprio? I forget what it even is. Don't look up. Don't oh, look yeah. up. <laughs> he was hilarious in that one. Uh, he was just so such a sleazeball, but played the role so well. He plays sleazeballs uh, very well. I recommend War Dogs if you're a Jonah Hill sleazeball fan. Okay. Yeah, I just like him. But Moneyball, obviously my favorite. The YouTube guys, I probably should get into the habit of... Uh, reminding the audience at the start, but we do have a YouTube channel and they did an episode on their favorite movies and uh, Moneyball, of course, was was one of them mentioned. So I guess on that we will wrap. It was kind of a lengthier episode, but uh, kind of a loaded one with the Hall of Fame here. Hope 
everybody enjoyed it. We will probably be back on Sunday with another Roast the Host edition. Uh, Jason did, he, he was on the hot seat for the previous one. I think that was three or four episodes ago. It'll say uh, Jason Kelly, 20 questions. So we'll probably do another round of that before the weekend is out, barring any major developments. I doubt there will be. We're still in a lockout. But uh, everybody have a good rest of your week. Take care.